Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, and all the people in between, to the Dogs Program. We are the Defenders of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. Yeah, we're here every week because we have to be. Oh, my goodness, what a week we've had. Like the week before and the week before that, things are really hotting up in the debate about whether state schools should be supported by the government. State government says yes, federal government says no. It's roundabout on the money-go-round up there in Canberra at the moment. But um, Jean has a very interesting perspective on it because she thinks that um, she thinks we're really talking about deck chairs. We're not talking about the main problem that exists, and so she'll be discussing that in her press release just in a little moment. But later in the program, we'll be travelling overseas to find out what's happening in America with Betsy DeVos, and I think it's also worth outlining our perspective on what we talk about here a great deal here on the Dog Program: the separation of people's beliefs, commonly called religion and the state, that is what it is that we all do together as a country, society, the separation of religion from the state or separation of the church from the state, um, because this is in the process of being called into question with a, a ruddock review up in federal government in, in, in Canberra talking about, um, I don't know, the rights of religious freedoms and all that sort of stuff. And there's a very interesting perspective um, being put forward by um, the, the, the ethics centre up there in, in New South Wales. Well, we're talking about that, but we are going to start off and finish off, of course, uh, with educational issues. Um, Jean's going to be talking about her ideas about what the real problem is that everyone's talking up in Canberra about or what everyone's afraid to talk about. And, of course, we'll be finishing with our great state school at the end of the program. We always highlight a state school around Australia that's doing great work because we think that that's worth highlighting seeing as our politicians in Canberra don't seem to be particularly interested. Um, so, Jean, can you share with us your, your researches over the week? Oh, what a, you're right. What a week it has been. Uh, in this press release, which has gone up on our website at www.adogs.info, I've listed um, all of the, or not all, but as many of the articles in different newspapers that I could find on the funding wars. This is all very interesting because back in 1973 with the Carmel Committee report and the needs policy, the state aid question was supposed to be buried and it just keeps resurrecting itself. However, when ScoMo loses the next election, will, will it be because of the state school and not the private school vote? I suspect it will be. But the long-term issue that we're really talking about here in Australia at the moment is the survival of free education because behind all of this talk about giving money to the Catholic schools, I suggest, they are talking about whether or not they can offer low fees to their parents. But why are they charging fees at all? Why should a democracy have fees in any school in the land if we are going to give educational opportunities to every child? That is really the question, and and the idea of free education underpins the idea of public education. It can't be public if there are fees. So here is the press release 764. The procession of so-called needs policies from 1973 to 2018, we've 
now got Gonski 2.0, when, when are we going to get Gonski 3.0, 4.0, I wonder, was supposed to put the state aid question to rest. Yet in the latest state aid auction, one resoundingly again by the sectarian Catholic interest, we are confronted with a deluge of media reports referring to buying school police conflict and funding wars. Those are not my words, those are the words in the press. Whereas in the 1960s taxpayers were confronted with demands for millions, now it is billions and ever more billions for not only running but also for capital costs for the expansion of private schools. In the early days they got running costs and only capital costs for libraries and science blocks. Now they want capital costs for new schools. Their level of subsidy, it's about 95% and in some cases over 100% in the Catholic sector, means that they are no longer even user pays. They are taxpayer funded schools which are not free in any sense of that word. Pupils can be rejected on the basis of sect, sex or ability to pay fees. Taxpayers, taxpayers are subsidising fees, not free education. Now, dogs are happy to analyse the current funding and political situation, but we would wish to go back to basics. We cannot have a policy for educating all of the children in Australia unless we have schools which are open to all children. And we cannot open all our schools to all our children unless all those schools are free. So let's go back to basics and fight for genuinely free education. And that's what the dogs are about and that's why we're here and we will continue to be here. Subsidising with public money any school that charges any fees, we are following a policy of parental choice, user pays and the resulting entrenched disadvantage and decline in standards in our education systems. The arguments used by the Catholic education lobbyists, because let's call them that, they might be bishops and they might be CEOs of, of, edu of Catholic Education Commissions, but they are lobbyists. Uh, so their arguments in the current state aid auction have emphasised their alleged wish to subsidise fee-paying schools. But the provision of billions of dollars of public money to schools which charge any fees, whatever, means that the basic principle of free education for all our children at taxpayer expense has been effectively undermined since the introduction of state aid in the 1960s. Needs policies are only a smokescreen which have masked this basic principle. The only way forward is not attempting to reach agreement on needs policies from Carmel, Gonski or anyone else. It's to make the charging of fees illegal and the provision of public money for public schools only and put that in legislation. In the current mess, the Catholic lobby may be laughing all the way to the bank with an extra 4.5 billions and a 1.2 billion slush fund, and Dan Tehan, the Federal Education Minister, may think that he has satisfied his colleagues in swinging seats. But all he has done is consolidate public school and even state government opposition. Consider the teaching union response. This was a tweet from a, a, a the president of the AEU, Karina Haythorpe. It came across my, my uh, computer and I thought it was interesting. Mr Morrison may think he has settled the funding wars, but he is wrong. We will escalate our campaign in 18 target seats, ensuring that parents know that it is the Morrison government which has abandoned public school students. And the response of Adrian Piccoli, a former New South Wales Minister for Education and Director of the Gonski Institute for Education at the University of New South Wales, is very interesting. He called the Catholic funding deal a political fix and a dud. And you can go and read that um, at uh, the um, website that we've mentioned in our press release. And there are a lot of websites that we've referred you to in this press release. 
Now, dogs reproduce some of this article, and we're asking you to note that Piccoli ends up saying that the private sector are never satisfied. They will always be back for more. And this is what Piccoli has written. The Commonwealth and the Catholic Education Commission make it very clear in their media statements that this new deal is going to subsidise choice in wealthier parts of Australia. Poorer Catholics should be outraged by this fact alone. And Piccoli, by the way, is a practising Catholic who sent his children to Catholic schools but was in fact one of the best education ministers that New South Wales has had in recent times. Earlier this year, Piccoli asked a Catholic bishop why the relatively low socio-economic status Sacred Heart Primary School in Wagga Wagga received $10,000 in government funding for each student, while Pruil Catholic Primary School in Warunga and Our Lady of Perpetual Succor in West Pimble, which is up in North Shore and very wealthy areas, with 70% of children in the top quartile of SES and 1% in the bottom quartile, both get around 10500 per student. Across 250 students, that's 100000 extra just in government funding to the high SES schools. On top of that, both Proil Catholic Primary and Our Lady of Perpetual Succor charge $3,000 in fees compared with the Sacred Heart in Wagga, which can only charge 1500 given the nature of their parent bodies. Again, Across 250 students, that's another 375,000 more available to an already advantaged school. The bishop's response was that some Catholic schools in wealthier parts of Sydney get extra subsidy from the Catholic system to boost their enrolments. He admitted to me they use funding to buy market share, particularly in wealthier suburbs. The real issue here is that Catholic schools in wealthy suburbs want to keep fees low to compete for enrolments against free public schools, but keep their services high to compete against independent schools. There is nothing equitable or fair about that at all, and it's contrary to the very concept of needs-based funding. This does nothing for the kids who need the funding the most. The Catholic Education Commission also argues that if funding was cut, it would have to close schools, presumably like those two Catholic schools on the North Shore. I wonder about that, because Waitara Public School and plenty of other public schools in the same area serving quite high SES children only get around $9,000 per student in government funding and charge no school fees and they seem to operate without much trouble. Do you understand what he's actually saying here? Up there in Warunga, um, the public school spends 9000 per student and the Catholic school gets and spends 10500 plus another 3000 per student um, every year. So it's costing us taxpayers more to fund the Catholic schools in Warunga than it is to fund the public school there. As for the $1.2 billion slush fund, well, it's anyone's guess as to how it will be used. It looks like a number that has been plucked out of the sky to throw at the non-government sector to keep it happy. Education Minister Tian's media release suggested it could go to help farmers subsidise the cost of boarding schools. If the Federal National Party thinks this is the highest priority for regional education then its MPs need to visit a lot more schools in their electorates. Presumably most of those farmers are bypassing the local country public and Catholic high school because they don't think they're good enough. Perhaps it's because they don't have enough funding. And don't think this is the end of it. Given the wording of the various statements made this week, there is every chance that when this slush fund runs out, the parties to the deal will go back for more. The Minister and the Sector have said they will, quote, review the new arrangements. What this really means is that this sweetheart deal could be continued indefinitely, just when we thought the funding wars were over. A new front has opened. 
Now, that is Piccoli, Adrian Piccoli, the previous Minister for Education who was doing such a good job for the public schools that they got rid of him. But he's now in an academic position and he was from the Country Party in New South Wales. No one can say that he is um, left-wing, even if he went on the ABC. They might try to get rid of him there, I suppose. The Labor opposition is having many billions each way on the education vote. If they win the next federal election, which education vote will have put them in? The only certainty, I suggest, is that it will be the public education vote that puts the Morrison government off the government benches and more independence on the cross benches. Even the New South Wales Liberal government already sees the education voting numbers on the board and is demanding extra funding for public schools before they will sign up to the Catholic funding deal. The Victorian government is also angling for the public school vote with advertisements for public school enrolments. Times have changed. The media is no longer buying the poor parish school hype as the evidence mounts on Catholic rorting of the funding system in favour of its top-end schools in their resourcing wars with the wealthy independent sector. The headings of the following articles tell their own story. And they're very interesting. The Fairfax media, journalists and editorials are consistently critical. And here's a few of them. Special funding for Catholic schools worsens dispute it was meant to settle. Editorial, Australian Financial Review of the 23rd of September. Are Catholic funds boost excessive? Editorial, The Age, the, the same day. Jennifer Hewitt, Tian seems excessively optimistic in the Australian Financial Review of the 24th of September. This is in the last week. Michael Cosiol, Catholic funds boost excessive Grattan Institute analysis in the age of the 24th of September. Buying school peace with temporary cash, Australian Financial Review, 25th of September. School funding deal lacks transparency, editorial of the age of the 25th of September. Catholic schools tipped to stagnate, Henrietta Cook, uh, on the 25th of September. I'm sorry, that was the 26th of September. Now, the Murdoch Press, not unsurprisingly, gives columns to Catholic system lobbyists from the Victorian Catholic Education Commission, the former Liberal MP Stephen Elder, and his attempt to answer critics. And the Australian, which is behind the, a paywall, had these two articles on the funding wars. Uh, there was one on the 26th of September, Catholic schools to fight for state cash because the uh, New South Wales government said that they wouldn't um, sign up to this funding deal. They said, you do that and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, be against you and uh, put you out of government. And Rosie Lewis, uh, on the 25th of September, wrote an article in, uh, called Catholic Swipe at Predictable Complaints Over Funding Deal. And that was a very interesting um, interview that she had with Stephen Elder. But The Guardian, which is not behind a paywall, provides perhaps the most extensive analysis of the funding wars issue with the possibility that extra grants may not get through the Senate. Uh, you have the Greens seek to disallow a big chunk of extra funding to Catholic schools on the 21st of September. A very interesting article by Lindsay Connors on the 23rd of September. Coalition recycles old nonsense with business as usual schools deal. Then also on the 23rd of September, Coalition admits states could derail its $4.6 billion for Catholic and independent schools. On the um, 24th of September... Victoria's Catholic education head appears to claim credit for the minister's scalp. Um, on the uh, 26th of September, states seek public education deal after coalition's Catholic school handout. And finally, government threatens to withhold billions in school funding unless states back the new deal on the 27th of September. That's just in this last week. 
The federal government, which does not have power under Section 51 of the Constitution to deal with education, but instead uses Section 96 with grants for specific purposes, has moved into bullying mode. Nothing new about that. Morrison and Tien are reduced to threatening to stop supply of school funding to the states. It's to be hoped that the states call their bluff. Meanwhile, Lindsay Connors sums up the $4.6 billion package as, and I found this an interesting expression, entitlement-based augmented by need. And she notes that it's nonsense for Morrison or his new education minister, Dan Tien, to claim that they can guarantee their new billions will make private schools more accessible to parents in the name of choice. They appear not to understand that it is not the subsidy that determines a child's access to these schools, but the upfront fee determined privately by the school. It's hoped that Lindsay Connors and other public school lobbyists still wedded to the needs rhetoric will finally then get back to basic principles and end the school funding wars once and for all. Because you can't, you can't end these funding wars so long as you give even one penny to these people. They will never be satisfied. You cannot have genuine educational opportunities for all children in Australia unless that education is absolutely free. Free from aspirational parents bleating about choice and free from religious, political or financial tests. And our final uh, statement is this. This means that state aid should be for state schools only. We pay for private schools. We more than pay for private schools. They have become inefficient and uneconomic if you take it on a national level. They duplicate state school facilities. So we pay for them, take them over and make them public schools that are genuinely free. That is the only and the obvious answer. If they can do it in Finland, if they could do it in Finland, dear listeners, when Finland had been absolutely trashed by both the Germans and the Russians after the Second World War, then surely we can do it in a place like Australia where, with the exception of Darwin, we were kept free from the ravages of the Second World War. So that is our press release 764 and you will find it at www.adogs.info. But let's have a bit of a break from my voice and some music.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Here with Gene, myself, Rob, and Dale here in the studio. Um, a fascinating insight into what's going on <laughs> because it's so hard to pick apart. So much money and so many conflicting rhetorics. It's all just getting a bit silly. Just as well we have Gene here at the Dogs Program to pick it all apart for us. We're going to take a break from Australia just briefly and go overseas for a bit. Um, because in the past we've analysed what's going on in, in the United States with the new administration. Well, it's not new anymore, is it? The um, new Republican administration and the Education Secretary over there, whose name is Betsy DeVos. Uh, Ms DeVos is... Um, well, she's done some extraordinary things. I'd just like to share what's happening over there because the legal system in America is fighting back against the executive government at the moment when it comes to education. Betsy DeVos is an unabashed uh, champion of privatising education across the nation. She thinks public education is a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of space. And if anything is worth doing, it's worth being done for profit. And she herself has been a champion of this for years and years and years. And now she's the Secretary for Education for Public Education in America. She's trying functionally and indeed incrementally to destroy it. Now... It's an interesting article from the New York Times because there's been some developments um, in what it is that she thinks she can get away with and what it is she can actually get away with as the Education Secretary. Because what happens is that there's a lot of private providers of education in Australia, in America, I should say, who have basically not provided the service to which they've been contracted to provide. They've gone bankrupt and they are still after the money from the students who have been defrauded. So they, they had fraudulently set up education institutions. They have defrauded the students, and the students still have to pay the, the fraudulent institutions back. They, their student loans, shall we say, are still current. Market forces. Market, market forces. forces. Yes. For the force of the market. Oh, how shocking. Anyway, a federal judge, in fact, in America, just, just in the last couple of days, and um, I'm actually reading from an editorial from the New York Times. So this is an editorial decision from that august, uh, august institution. Um, the editorial board has written that the federal judge has sent a, the right message last week when he blocked the Education Secretary Betsy DeVos's suspension of the obama Emory rule that allows students defrauded by for-profit colleges to have some of their federal loans forgiven. Now, this was the judge's second ruling in a suit filed by attorneys general from 19 states who argued that Ms. DeVos has broken the law by delaying the rule from taking effect, and they demanded that it immediately be reinstated. The judge, Randolph Moss, of the Federal District Court in Washington, had earlier found that Ms. DeVos had broken the law, and last week he invalidated Ms. DeVos's attempt to dismantle the rule by staying his ruling for 30 days to give the Education Department time to respond. The next step should be to order the department to grant debt relief to thousands of student borrowers who have applied and are clearly eligible under the original rule. The rule known as the Borrower's Defence is rooted in the provision of the Higher Education Act of 1965 and is intended to lift the debt burdens on students who were misled by the schools that they went to. The rule was designed to compel schools to offer a fair education and to refrain from predatory practices. They should be paid. Yeah. Not like lying about career opportunities or steering students into ruinously priced loans that have been well documented, well documented over the last 10 years in America. Now, Ms. DeVos has essentially made the Education Department a subsidiary of the for-profit college industry. Republicans in Congress who wish to hide from this issue are being peppered with complaints from constituents victimised by the for-profit schools, particularly in America. Veterans have been targeted by companies that covet their GI benefits. Now, Ms. DeVos has already proposed tightened loan forgiveness rules to make it virtually impossible for those people who are defrauded by predatory schools to get any financial relief at all. She has also proposed rescinding the Gainful Employment Rule, which enforces the long-standing Higher Education Act requirement that career education programs prepare students for gainful employment in recognised occupations. Now, the Education Department wants to replace this important rule with additional disclosure requirements, covering debt, expected earnings, completion rates and other measures that would apply to all colleges. This disregards the breathtaking fraud that has been documented specifically at for-profit colleges and the fact that their students take on greater debt 
and are more likely to default on their loans. The Department has defended their decision to jettison the employment rule by describing it as a burden to institutions of higher learning. It's the red tape argument. But in letters this month, the American Council for Education, which represents about 1,700 colleges, argue persuasively that rescinding the rule instead of perhaps modifying it would damage the interests of students, interests of colleges, and indeed the interests of everyone. Still others have portended another round of lawsuits by arguing that the decision to rescind is itself unlawful because the Education Department has not disclosed the factual basis of how it comes to its decision. Now, Ms DeVos and her cronies, and this is not my language, this is the language of the New York Times editorial, Ms DeVos and her cronies in the for-profit industry seem to think they can plough ahead with these and other damaging proposals regardless of opposition. But it will not take long before the wider public focuses on the fact that the Education Department is undermining higher education to line the pockets of an industry where schools can get up to 90% of their revenue from federal student aid. That position will be difficult at election time, says the New York Times. What, what they're describing here, and, the, and, and, and that's where the article finished, and, and I would like to add that what they're describing here is functionally what happened in Victoria over the last 10 years with the TAFE sector and vocational education. It's exactly the same thing. It, was, it is a completely preventable disaster. It is not a hurricane. It is, it is not an earthquake. It's something that we made. We knew we were making it when we made it. We warned about it. Now it's a disaster. Um, and that's what's happening in America. Well, it's just uh, another example of um, privatisation which requires a royal commission. Unfortunately, all we get in Australia at the moment is a royal commission which shows that the self-regulated uh, for-profit uh, services, whether it is electricity or banks or you name it, education now, uh, it requires a royal commission. Mm -hmm. What it requires is being taken back under public control. I I would note actually, not just education, but um, I I think it's fascinating that the Green Party in Victoria has called for the the re- um, the renationalisation of the power industry here in Victoria. It's obvious. I would yes. say exactly the same approach should be taken to the education system. If we were at war, it would be done immediately. Absolutely. Uh, we'll be back with some more. Actually, I'm going to talk a little bit more, I think, about separation of religion and the state after, after this. Tilda, Melbourne's Trans and Gender Diverse Film Festival is launching its 2018 program on October the 11th. The program runs from Thursday the 8th to Sunday the 11th of November at Footscray Community Arts Centre and celebrates the best trans and gender diverse cinema on offer along with Q&A sessions with festival guests and opening and closing night events. Program details and tickets are available at tildamelbourne.com. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dial and podcast on the WWWs. Also, um, everything that we do here on the Dogs is detailed on our website, www.adogs.info. And one of the things that we've always been interested in here in Australia is, is we always talk about fairness and equity and equality and all these, all these words get mixed up. Um, and you know, I'm not going to define them here just at this time, but we also talk about the separation of religion from the state. Um, do we live here in Australia in a secular democracy or do we not? Um, I would argue, functionally, that we do not live in a secular democracy, which, which concerns me greatly, um, but I'm happy to have that argument. There are other points of view. But at the moment, um, because there was this same-sex marriage sort of plebiscite or whatever it's called, and now um, uh, people who are of the same sex are, are free to get married in Australia, um, there has been a sort of fight back because the federal government under Turnbull, Turnbull was forced to set up an inquiry into religious freedom because there was some concern that if, if two people of the same sex can be married, that actually has the capacity to impinge upon the religious freedom of other people. Um, now, Simon Longstaff, uh, who's been involved in the St. James Essex um, Ethics Centre up in Sydney, has written an interesting article which I think outlines very clearly the problem. Not the solution, but he outlines the problem that's actually supposed to, well, well, is useful to be discussed. We had a solution in Section 116 of the Constitution, but it was read down and out in the dog's case yeah. in 1981 because the the private schools wanted to argue that they weren't religious institutions. And so, and they, so it made, they made a nonsense of what was in fact a very, very strong 
Bill of Rights um, section of our Constitution for religious freedom. We Indeed. Don't have so Simon freedom. Longstaff writes, he says, as the Commonwealth Government ponders its response to, in fact, Ruddock's review, which is out, we just haven't seen it yet, it's worth considering what people of faith may be seeking to preserve and what limits society might justifiably seek to impose upon those people of religion. Now, the term religious freedom encompasses a number of distinct but related ideas. At the core is the freedom of belief in God or God's or the higher realm of being, in whatever version you see fit. Many religions make absolute and often mutually exclusive claims to truth, much of which cannot be proven. Religions rely instead on acts of faith. Next, as opposed to belief, comes freedom to worship, the freedom to perform unhindered the rituals associated with one's faith. And then there's the freedom to act, in good conscience, to give effect to one's religious beliefs in the course of one's daily life and as a corollary not to be forced to act in a manner which would violate one's sacred obligations. And finally, there's the freedom to proselytise, to teach the tenets of one's religion to be faithful to those who might be persuaded. Now in a secular liberal democracy, the four types of religious freedom outlined above, that is to say to believe, freedom to worship, to freedom to act and the freedom to proselytise, attract different degrees of liberty. For example, people are generally free to believe what takes their fancy, no matter how ill-founded or bizarre. This is not so in all societies. Some theocracies will punish heretics by, for holding unorthodox beliefs, and that is not the case here in Australia. Now, acting out a belief in worship deeds and proselytising is often, however, the subject of some measure of restraint. For example, pious folk are not permitted to set up a pulpit, or equivalent, in the middle of a main road. They are not permitted to beat women, even if the teaching of the religion allows or requires for such a beating. They are not permitted to let a child die because of a religious objection to life-saving medical procedures. Nor are they able to teach that some people are lesser beings, lacking intrinsic dignity, simply because of their gender, their sexuality, their culture, their religion, and so on and so forth. In other words, there are boundaries set on the expression of religious belief, whatever those beliefs might be. It is precisely the setting of such boundaries that has become now, in Australia, the point of contention. Now, some Australian religious leaders claim that they should be exempt from the application of Australian laws of which they do not approve, such as the anti-discrimination legislation. Now, this is nothing new. As it happens, in Australia, a number of religions have long denied the validity of secular law, even to the extent of running parallel legal systems. Mm. The Catholic Church regularly applies canon law in Australia to cases involving the status of divorcees, mm. the sanctity of confessions, and so on. The government of Australia might recognise divorce, but the Catholic Church does not. So, according to the official website of the Catholic Archdiocese of Sydney, and I quote, A divorce is a civil act that claims to dissolve a valid marriage. From a civil legal perspective, a marriage existed and then was dissolved. The Catholic Church does not recognise the ability of the state to dissolve a marriage. An annulment, on the other hand, is an official declaration by a church tribunal that what appeared to be a valid marriage is not actually a valid marriage in the first place. In a similar vein, the Jewish community maintains a separate legal system that oversees the application of Halakhidic law, although the operation of special Jewish religious courts called the Beth Din. Given the precedence set by Christians and Jews in Australia, it is not surprising that adherents of other faith groups, notably Muslims, are seeking the same right, the same right to apply religious laws within their own courts and to enjoy exemptions from the application of secular law. Given all this, are there any principles we might draw on when setting the boundaries for religion's freedoms? Now, fortunately, the proponents of freedoms of religion have provided an excellent starting point for answering the question. It begins with the core of their argument, that freedom of belief, or religion, is a fundamental human right. Their claim is well-founded. However, those who invoke fundamental human rights cannot cherry-pick among those rights, only defending those which suit their preference. Fundamental rights come as a bundle. They are indivisible. 
It follows from this that if people of faith are to assert their claims to religious freedom as a fundamental human right, then the exercise of that freedom should be consistent with the realisation of all other fundamental human rights. Religious freedom is just one. It also follows that any legislative instrument designed to create a legal right to freedom of religion must circumscribe that right to the extent necessary to ensure that other human rights are not curtailed. For example, a legal right to religious freedom should not authorise violence against another person, nor should it permit discrimination of a kind that would otherwise be considered unlawful under human rights legislation. It is therefore to be Commonwealth legislation and it should establish an unrestricted right of belief and an unrebuttable presumption in favour of acting on those beliefs. The limits to action should be that, should, should be that the conduit, either by word or deed, does not constrain the liberty of another person, nor does subject another person to any form of violence, and does not deny the intrinsic dignity of another person, and does not violate the human rights of another person. Finally, it's essential that as a liberal democracy, any Australian legislation specifies that the tenets of a religion only apply to those who have freely consented to adopt that religion. So what might this look like in practice, say in relation to same-sex marriage, now that that's lawful? And he presents the, he, he, he presents the contrast. That is, the performance of marriage versus baking a cake. Nobody should be compelled to believe that same-sex marriage is moral. That is a matter for personal belief and is unrelated to the law. Moreover, it should be permissible to teach to all members of one's faith group and to advocate more generally that same-sex marriage is immoral. Now, this is not a view that the author holds, it's not a view that I hold, but it is a view. The fact that something is legal leaves open the question as to its morality. Furthermore, no person should be required to perform a marriage if doing so would violate the dictates of their conscience. Catholic priests, for instance, refuse to marry heterosexual divorcees. Such marriages are allowed by the state, yet no priest is forced to perform such a marriage because to do so would make them directly complicit in an act that their religion forbids. But such an allowance, Simon argues, should only extend to those at risk of becoming directly complicit in objectionable acts. For example, such an allowance would not be granted to a religious baker not wanting to provide a wedding cake to a gay couple. Cakes play no direct role in the formalities of civil marriage. So, unlike a pharmaceutical company that might justifiably object to being complicit in the supply of drugs to an executioner, a baker is never going to be complicit in the performance of a marriage. As such, a baker should be bound by law to supply his or her goods on a non-discriminatory basis. Of course, there will always be some who feel obliged to put the requirements of their religion before the law. To act according to one's conscience is an honourable choice, but this should only be done if one is willing to bear the civil penalty. Um, and I just think that's a really good framework because when this thing hits, when, when, when Ruddock's review hits, hit, hits the papers, it's going to be on for young and old, I can tell you right now. You've been well, if Morrison is a good Christian, then he should go to Matthew, I think it's 21, 22, where Christ said, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Yes. And the question is, what is Caesar's? And the law of the land is what a good Christian will attempt to always fulfil. Well, yep, that's, that's, a, that's a perspective, certainly. Look, you've been listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. We'll return with our Great State School of the Week.
Spring into Gardening is back this October. Hosted by Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis, celebrating sustainability and all things green for one day only. Featuring free workshops and demonstrations, hands-on kids' activities and market stalls to help with planting and preparing your garden for summer. Spring into Gardening, Sunday, October the 14th at Victoria Gardens, Paran. Go to stonington.vic.gov.au for more details. A 3CR supporter. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the Week. State school. School of the Week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the Week. School for the Week here on the Dogs Program. the demand a piano concerto there but we've got our great state school coming up and I tell you what, it is a pretty great state school it's up at Lightning Reef in Bendigo the Lightning Reef Primary School it's an extraordinary school the first thing I tell you about Lightning Reef Primary School it's got about 200 kids go to it in the entire school only 10 of those children live in a home where a parent works um, this is a very grim statistic for the school, and you go, oh, gee, well, that's, that's terrible, isn't it? Grim statistic reflects one of the many challenges faced by the state school in Bendigo, and I'm quoting now from an article by Henrietta Cook in The Age of the 27th of September. She says, the school is a neighbourhood dominated by public housing. One quarter of its students arrive at school hungry, cramming into the canteen for a state government-funded breakfast cereal and toast. The area is a hotspot for youth unemployment. According to the MySchool website, 84% of the children at Lining Ridge are from Australia's most disadvantaged families. Despite these hardships, the school is on a mission to improve its students' futures. And mission is a really interesting word. Six years ago, it joined forces with the Goldfield Local Learning and Environment Network and three other Bendigo primary schools to create a program intended to lift the aspirations of students. Now, let me tell you about this school. It's really, really fascinating. I, I just find it interesting. And it's, it's, in a, it's in a broader context. Well, she's right. 84% of the kids come from the bottom quartile of... Of, of kids in Australia. Now, the 12% come from the, the bottom middle quartile. There are 4% of the kids that are in the richest half of Australians and, and le- much less than 1% are from the richest quartile. There's more boys than girls, but not by very much. So the ICSIA value of this school, with 1,000 being the median, and, and it's 845. It's, it's one of the poorest schools in Australia by, by ICSIA value. So struggling stuff. And so how are the kids going? What are their NAPLAN results? I, I hear you scream. Um, they're fine. <laughs> they're good, in fact. Um, certainly against similar schools, they're, they're good. Uh, the spelling's a bit of a problem, um, and I'm sure I'll be working on that over the years. But compared to all Australian students, they are struggling, but compared to schools with similar students, they are doing just fine. Good dedicated teachers. Very good dedicated teachers. And I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it. So how much does all this cost? Well, because they've got the breakfast club and that's been subsidised, so to get the food into the kids costs a certain amount of money per year. That's around about $500 to $1,000 a year to give them breakfast every morning. Yeah, and it takes about eleven to 12000 to educate a child to gold standard in Australia. Um, that, that's just an average kid, and these are not average kids. These are kids that come from struggling families. $14,238 per kid per year. Bargain. Bargain to get a good education, and they're doing something proactive in the school, partnerships with other organisations in the community to not just improve the education but improve the aspirations of the kids. That's very good management, isn't it? That must it's be a very, very clever principle. Extraordinary good management. Um, their attendance rates, as kids turning up, 92%. Ooh. And across Australia, that's very, very good. So the kids are turning up to school, probably in, in many cases for breakfast. <laughs> but um, they're turning up. So they're doing really good things. Now, this is fascinating. Now, what I'm going to talk about now is that this school is a great state school. I'm just going to say it straight up. Lightning Reef Primary School in North Bendigo is a great state school. But I very rarely do this, but I'm going to do a compare and contrast because there's a school down the road and it's not a state school. It's a Catholic school. Now, the Catholic school down the road, it's literally down the road. It's like 300 metres down the road. So its, it's intake of kids should be the same, but it's not. 
60% of the kids are from the bottom quartile, 24% from the middle bottom. There's around about 20% of the kids come from the richest people in Australia. So you can see there's something going on here where the poorest of the poor go to the state school in the area and the slightly less poor in the area go to the local Catholic school. Now, how much does it cost the government, just the government, to educate a kid in the St Peter's School, which is what it's called in North Bendigo, just down the road? $15,050. It costs $14,000 of government money in the Catholic school and $1,000 worth of parents' money. You put those two together, you get a bit over $15,000. It costs the taxpayer more money to send the child to the Catholic school down the road from Lightning Reef. Which have got less disadvantaged children. They have fewer disadvantaged children. And more wealthy parents. And more wealthy parents at St Peter's North in Bendigo. Now, the really interesting thing is that when you look at those horrible things, the NAPLAN results, the NAPLAN results for St Peter's School... By the way, it's, 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 it's a slightly smaller school. It has slightly higher ratios. This is, this is the Catholic school down the road. The NAPLAN results against schools with similar students are very, very poor. Now, NAPLAN is not really a, a gauge of a school, but if you're looking at raw scores, the St Peter's School is not doing anywhere near as good a job as the Lightning Reef School down the road, as the State School down the road, and it's costing more money. Are you surprised? No, I'm not. No, I'm no, not no, no. But it's costing more government money. Yep. And it's, it's costing much more money because the parents are being asked to cough up over $1,000 a year as well. Mm. Now, it, the story doesn't stop there. Because when you dig into St Peter's School, which is the Catholic school down the road, which isn't doing as well with more government money, you look at the history of St Peter's School. Now, St Peter's School started in the 70s because there was a growth in the population at that point. And there's another school just a little bit further down the road again, which is called St Killian's School in Bendigo. It's a primary school down the road. Now, if you look at St Killian's School... It's something, something really interesting happens. St. Peter's has a lot of poor students compared to St. Killian's School because St. Killian's School, Ixia value, you know, a thousands, a thousands the mean, the primary school down the road from the one down the road is 1,062. In fact, there are many more wealthy parents. In fact, 30% of the kids going to St. Killian's School are in the top quartile. The children in Bendigo are being separated out on the basis of class. The Catholic children in Bendigo are being separated. The rich kids are going to St. Killian's and the poor kids are going to St. Peter's. And the poor kids at St. Peter's... If, if I was a parent, in, if I was a parent, a Catholic parent who, who, who believed very truly and sincerely in, in, in my Catholic beliefs and insisted I send my child to a Catholic school and they were in St. Peter's, I would be outraged. That's what Piccoli is saying, um, that what is happening with this money and the way the Catholic Ed commissions have been behaving all along leaves a lot to be desired. They have been, and the dogs have been saying this since the 1970s, the Catholic commissions have been channeling our taxpayer money into the wealthiest schools and leaving the poor children. Uh, with lesser funds. Yeah, and I'll tell you right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get back to the, I mean, what I think is the scandal that's going on down the road in those two Catholic schools and the amount of money that's being, my money is being poured into these two Catholic schools. I want to get back to one thing. Of all the schools, Lightning Reef, the one I want to talk about, and the other two, Lightning Reef actually has by far the highest enrolment of Indigenous students. So they're the ones that are dealing, not, they, they take, they are, Lightning Reef, I'm sorry, a great start school because they are free, they feed the kids, they are universal and they are open to all. Whereas if you look at the Indigenous enrolments in St Killian's, it's zero. They don't, they, don't, they don't want that sort up there. So next time someone talks to me about values, I'm going to point out, point out these three schools up there in Bendigo because Paul. state school values are the values that we here promote at the dogs and we'll continue to do through our website at www.adogs.info, www.adogs.info. And if you have a good school that you think we should talk about, please give us a call here at the Dogs Program. Just call up the radio station on... 94198377 that's 94198377 but look there's so much going on you better tune in next week because we've got so much more to fill you in on here on the dogs program
on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Until next week, from G, myself and Dale, it's bye for now. Joe, you're ten years dead. I never.